I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today. That despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith experience. This episode is one that is sure to get you thinking. It is a topic that I have painfully grappled with to understand, and I still don't think I fully grasp it, but I must try. The topic for this episode is freedom. Who of us can really say that we feel completely free, even though scripture promises that we are indeed free? So let's start at the most obvious place. What is freedom? In answering this question, I think it's important to distinguish biblical freedom from worldly freedom because there is a difference. Let's start with worldly freedom. Worldly freedom proposes that as individuals, we ought to be allowed to do what we want, act as we want, and say what we want. It is a permission and power to be without reprimand. Of course, societally, we don't fully attest to that, but I'll get to that a bit later. Much of our understanding around worldly freedom is derived from the French, particularly in relation to the French Revolution, in that liberty is the right to do as you wish as long as that right does not impede on another's ability to exercise the same right, and also as long as in the exercising of your rights, injury or harm is not brought upon anyone else. So, for example, you're free to drive on the roads, but you must complete the required training to ensure that your right to drive drive doesn't cause injury or impede on another person's right to drive. Biblical freedom, on the other hand, is primarily concerned with our inner world and our status in Christ. We all inherit a sinful nature, and unfortunately, this sinful nature is a brutal ruler. It controls and subdues us. We often don't think of it that way when sin tempts us because we are deceived into thinking that sin is our advocate. When I was a young adult tempted to binge drink, I fully believed that sin was advocating for me. I thought it just wanted me to have a good time and enjoy myself. Thank goodness for me, I am a horrendously slow drinker with all beverages, so my desires to binge drink never really eventuated. But who of us has ever been genuinely satisfied by sin? Did I ever feel better for having gone out for a few drinks? No, It it fails to be real satisfaction if it requires us to habitually pursue it in order to experience it. That's the opposite of satisfaction. Did I have a good time though? Yeah, sure, to a degree, but it wasn't true joy like I feel now and they clearly aren't memorable moments because I wouldn't be able to tell you a single time that I went out. I know what you're thinking, you cheeky listeners. It wasn't not memorable because I was too drunk to remember those days, okay? They just weren't all that great. Sin is a deceiver. It doesn't have our best intentions in mind. When it compels us to satisfy it and its desires, it's not concerned with whether it's good for you or your family or whether you have a job at the end of the day because of it. It cares little for your bank balance and your future. It only selfishly seeks its own fulfillment. Like when my dog comes and sooks at me to give him his food. He doesn't care that I'm busting to go to the toilet or that nobody else in the house has eaten yet. He doesn't even care that I've already fed him. He just keeps demanding until he receives what he wants. That's like sin. 
except my dogs are really cute and sin isn't cute. So, yeah. And this fleshly nature makes us inherently self-centered and selfish. It actually convinces us that we are justified in seeking our own gain, even if it harms us and others. We don't like thinking about ourselves as selfish because we reason that we are doing the best that we can. And true, most of us are doing the best that we can every single day. But often a lot of our motives are self-centered. Like when we're children, we often obey our parents because we have to, to avoid punishment. It's not necessarily because we love them or honor them or even understand why exactly our rooms need to be so tidy. Our obedience is based on self-preservation. When we get to work on time, we do so because we have a self-image, a self-perception that we are trying to protect. We want to be hardworking. We don't do it because we love our employer, generally speaking. If we really had the choice, we would snooze a little longer. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm simply trying to demonstrate that our good behavior is not always pure. True freedom is having nothing that controls us. That is what is so revolutionary about the life of faith. God does not control us. He teaches, he leads, he offers us opportunities to grow, he invites us into a deeper relationship with him, but he does not control us. He encourages us to submit to him, which is by nature voluntary. I know many find this word submission hard and truth be told, so do I. And that's because many sinful Christians have used this word to coerce others. But submission by nature is voluntary. The power is still in our hands to submit. The moment it is forced or coerced, it is no longer true submission. See, God knows that while sin continues to demand of us, the hopes of him being our Lord are really slim. So God, the one and only truly unselfish being, sends his son into our realm and pays the price of sin on our behalf. He dies in our place. By his unselfish and perfect sacrifice, sin no longer condemns us to death and punishment. He essentially nullifies sin's power. And we are now able to live out faith with grace and forgiveness should we fall short. Furthermore, we also have the Holy Spirit who continues the process of sanctification in us so that we might be led by the Spirit rather than the flesh. The concept of worldly freedom and biblical freedom isn't always necessarily in direct opposition with each other. Worldly freedom speaks of choice. God also acknowledges that we have a choice. It's called free will. God doesn't force us to choose him. But if we do choose to follow Jesus, we are agreeing to surrender our will. If we truly count the cost, that is what it means. Something that many believers still deny in the way they live. However, the choice to surrender is ours and ours alone. Not even God will make you do it. And nobody can guilt trip you into that either. And that is where a stark difference exists between worldly freedom and biblical freedom. Worldly freedom says, I will exercise my right to choose. Biblical freedom says, I will surrender my right to choose and render it God's right. 
you can understand why it is so hard for people to make this choice then, right? And why sanctification progressively delivers us to that surrendered life rather than it being something we do cold turkey. Additionally, worldly freedom makes no comment on the rightness of our wants unless it affects others. Whilst biblical freedom defines sin and clarifies the rightness of our wants and desires. Now, I'm not the first person to say all of this, right? I'm just repeating what Paul has said many times in slightly different wording, right? But here's the pink elephant. Why then do we struggle with freedom? Why don't we feel free? The only thing I have come to conclude from this question is that there must be some comprehension issue for us when it comes to A, either our understanding of the consequences of sin being completely eradicated or B, our understanding of how enslaving sin actually is and therefore how Jesus' sacrifice changes that. Like either we really don't get how heavily death and condemnation were a reality for us or we don't see that sin truly limited and contained us and how neither of these situations apply anymore. At least in my own life, I would say it's a little bit of both, actually. My own lack of depth in these areas are demonstrated in my own struggles with sin. In the story I'm about to tell you, I absolutely had no idea how enslaving sin was to me, especially in the beginning. I also didn't see everything it was doing to me or what it could have done to those I love. A sin that I have struggled with in my past is pornography. When I was young, I went through sexual abuse and a significant aspect of that abuse was being forced to watch pornography. For several years after that, it was a real struggle. I became a more anxious person and depressed and I was very preoccupied with my own appearance and body image. I just want to say here as a bit of a side note, it is a terribly backward thing that the body of Christ still thinks of pornography as a men's issue. And sometimes even the degree to which it affects men is understated. In 2021, Pornhub conducted a year in review survey and noted that 35% of their viewers worldwide were women. So for every 10 viewers, three were likely to be female. But furthermore, in some countries, women made up 50% of their viewers. We cannot afford to presume that pornography is a men's issue. So getting back to the story, when I really started following God as a young adult, I knew that I had to do something about it. Prior to that, I had often felt controlled by it or even powerless. And to a degree, I don't even know if I wanted to change. It wasn't until I began to really comprehend these ideas about sin and freedom that I started to see the real breakthroughs happening. I started to see that sin isn't this pleasurable thing that God just doesn't like because he's a killjoy or a spoil sport. This sin was hurting me and may eventually hurt others in my life, including my future spouse. This was not real freedom, the kind that Christ died for. It has been a very, very long time since I was tempted with pornography and I'm a healthier person for it. I've seen a massive improvement in my feelings of shame, my body image issues and just general self-worth. I am free from it. For the sake of those who struggle with pornography, I want to give some practical advice because I realize that this is a massive issue and it's not always talked about as openly as it could be to help others deal with it. And so many believers are committing this sin in secrecy. 
So even though it's not specifically the goal of this episode, here are four tips that I think could help. Number one, try and learn what your triggers are. For me, it was loneliness. And from what I understand, that is a common scenario. By learning your triggers, you have a better chance at remedying the deeper soul issue at play here and also just identifying some practical measures to reduce your exposure. Number two, learn about the effects of pornography. You know, some people don't realize that pornography actually illuminates the same part of your brain that's associated with addiction, which means that even one viewing is producing a response that your body will be geared to want to produce again. There are even general things to learn about pornography that can help, like the relationship between pornography and sex trafficking. Did you know that often participants in pornography are drugged and coerced? They haven't even been coherent enough to consent to what they are doing. These facts put pornography into perspective. A great account to follow on Instagram or Facebook is Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is an organization that is committed to giving like education and understanding around pornography. They are not a religious organization, but they just produce some really informative content around the harms of pornography in a quite a holistic way, like to the individual and even to society, which I think is really significant to know about. Number three, go deeper in your faith. Take some time to consider the value that God has placed on mankind by giving us his image. It is a really, really honorable thing. We are the only ones in the whole of creation to bear his image. There is innate value in us. There is a video called Justice that the Bible Project produced. It is fantastic for reminding us that we are not meant to take from others because of the dignity we have as image bearers. I know you are probably wondering, how does this apply to pornography? Well, even if someone parades themselves in a sexual way, this does not make it okay to undervalue them. They are image bearers, no matter how they treat themselves. When we don't give dignity to our fellow human beings, we don't honour the image of God. And of course, that applies to more than just pornography. Number four, get yourself the book, Captured by a Better Vision, by Tim Chester. The book is all about living a porn-free life and it's totally worth it. So how does nullifying the power of sin make us free today? That's really the big question here, isn't it? Like how is it supposed to make us experience freedom today? What does it mean to live according to biblical freedom? There are several things that it means and they are really powerful things. So I really just encourage you to listen intently and receive everything that I'm about to say. Number one, we no longer have to justify ourselves through our works. So just take a moment to really consider what this means. Do you know what justify means? It's the act of presenting an explanation or defense for your actions. Now, in a real life situation, we often do have to explain our behavior, like our boss might ask us to explain why we lost a client. But when we justify ourselves, we are attempting to explain why we aren't responsible or accountable for a situation. Before God, we no longer have to defend ourselves. And the same goes with Satan, who is the actual accuser. We don't have to demonstrate how good we are to him in order to be approved by God or be considered worthy of his saving grace. Again, let's go deeper on this point. 
what does this look like in practice? If we no longer have to justify ourselves through our works, what would that look like practically? This is phenomenal if you can grasp this. We don't need to prove ourselves anymore. How many ways do we continue to feel the need to prove ourselves still in this life? Well, I'll tell you. Firstly, we're often trying to prove to the world that we are good, that we are cool, important, that we're beautiful, that we're smart, that we're trendy, that we know people, that we have money, that we have the right house and the right car and the right spouse. Oh, that kind of rhymed. The whole package. You know, we're often trying to prove that we've got it together, that we can get things done, that we are strong. And we're often trying to prove this to our church communities too. We're trying to prove that we're reliable, that we're trustworthy, that we're faithful and loyal, that we're anointed, that we're diligent, we're educated, we're charismatic, and we could go on. Then we're also trying to prove to ourselves sometimes that we are good. We're trying to prove to ourselves that we are good parents or at least better than the parents we had We're often trying to prove that we're good daughters or sons or good students or good employees or good stewards of money or righteous. We're trying to prove that we're righteous or that we're disciplined or we're consistent or that we're a good friend. We might not be doing any of this to impress others, including God, but simply because we need to convince ourselves that we are indeed good enough. See, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. This is how Paul was able to deflect the judgment of others and refrain from even judging himself because he knew that he no longer had to prove himself. He was free. He didn't have to demonstrate his good works to anyone, including God. Others' judgment is no longer our concern which also means we are able to pursue righteousness with freedom. It may not seem like such a big deal, but it really is. Prior to Jesus, pursuing righteousness was precarious. There was fear associated with trying to be good because in all our efforts to be good, we very likely would fall short. Our imperfections and tendencies could land us in eternal trouble. Christ makes it possible for us to pursue righteousness without the heavy burden of guilt and shame. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There was condemnation before, but not anymore. We can grow and not fear. In this way, our spiritual growth can be a joy. We can joyfully pursue righteousness. The Pharisees had added to the law, requiring that the children of God adhere to them. Unfortunately, they weren't stipulated by God and they didn't add to the relationship people had with God. If anything, it created greater distance between God and his people, which Jesus sought to rectify. But for us now, we have no need to live out rules and precepts to satisfy others that we are holy. There are many things that we in the church adopt as a rule, believing that God requires it of us. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. Let's continue. We don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to pretend to be something more than we are. We are a work in progress anyway. We can't have it all together. 
I know for those who have listened today and have struggled with pornography too, you know the shame you already feel for this secret sin. And you also know how much more the shame is intensified by not sharing this struggle with people you trust. The people who might pray for you or provide some accountability for you. The people who can remind you of who you are in Christ when you fall. Having people we can be transparent with is critical to our continuity in faith. The fact that we often don't share our struggles with others demonstrates the shame we feel for having had these struggles. And now here is the final point. The one that puts the cherry on the cake which I don't actually really know why people say that because I've had so few cakes with a cherry on top. Okay, I'm getting distracted here. So here is the number one fact for me at least that I think makes the biggest difference to our daily living out of faith. The only power Satan legitimately had over us was that he could turn our sin into condemnation. That's it, nothing else. So even though the enemy might be able to deceive us, to tempt us, and even slander us. He really has no power over us anymore because even if his ploys are successful, we are still not condemned. Paul was saying something so rich and full of theological substance when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? The enemy is defeated and no human can take away what God has done. His attacks on us now are the equivalent of a child having a hissy fit. He cannot change his destiny. And as long as we are convinced that we are indeed free and that we are never again condemned, there is no reason for our trajectory to change either. I've seen people fall away from faith before because they feel guilty about the sin they can't seem to break. This is such a deception of the enemy. No sin will ever change your status in God. We are free. We are not condemned. The enemy cannot defeat us unless he deceives us about our freedom. So now that we are so incredibly free, what are we to do? In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is trying to clarify to the church what having freedom does not mean. The freedom that grace gives us is not supposed to be a type of free pass to sin more. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 1 to 2, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? To be forgiven for our sins only to return to it is no different to a death row inmate being granted clemency only to commit the same crimes again. Yes, it may happen, but most see clemency as a second chance at life and choose to live this new life differently. Most would choose to enjoy their freedom. If the only way we perceive grace is as a license to sin, we surely have not understood the freedom we have been given. The fact is that there is only one thing we really can do with our freedom. We can use it to love and serve God and our neighbours. When we are this free, What have we got to lose by giving and looking outwardly rather than inwardly? We look inwardly or self-focused when we have insecurity about the kind of peace and freedom we will experience in this life. Is that not what drives us to pursue worldly pleasures? We become selfishly ambitious because we are convinced that there is something, some accolade that we must achieve or obtain to be satisfied. 
But if we really grasp the fact that we are free to not have to prove ourselves, we realize that our satisfaction doesn't come from some future destination that we've aspired to. We have peace. Is that not what satisfaction ultimately stems from? Being others-focused is no longer a threat to our own fulfillment. It is an extension of the fulfillment we already have in Christ and this immeasurable freedom he has purchased for us. Possibly the most fascinating act that Christ demonstrated for us is the surrendering of his own life into the hands of the religious leaders. To be the Son of God, the most divine being that they would ever have seen with their own eyes, and yet give yourself into the hands of a bunch of men that were not only sinful but greatly misled in their faith is just so unusual. Today, none of us would knowingly and willingly give our lives into the hands of a manipulative and controlling institution, especially if we knew that they wanted us dead. But Jesus did this. And from what we can see, he was unwavering in spite of their threatening ways. He answered the questions he could and didn't respond when he didn't have to. He, he didn't feel any need to defend himself when they accused him. And in the end, this group that he submitted to, that he did not resist or rebuke, brought his life to a gruesome end. But they did not know who they were dealing with. How can you rob a man of his freedom who is already free? What good are shackles on the one whose spirit could never be bound? We may not be able to do what Jesus did without harm coming to us, but we can certainly experience freedom because we are already free. Hi listeners, this month I have two really exciting offers for you. Firstly, for all of my Australian listeners, you can now pre-order my third book, Deep Faith, Resilient Faith, at a discounted rate from my website. It's not going to stay this price forever, so head on over to meljsayward.com forward slash store. Secondly, and I'm really excited about this one, Fight the New Drug, the non-religious organisation sharing valuable content on the harms of pornography that I mentioned in this episode are offering all Pink Elephant podcast listeners a 15% discount. All you got to do is visit ftnd.org forward slash shop and use the code REP15 when checking out. Woo! 